Hi, this is Nicholas Harris. Hi, Nick. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for uh, having me on today. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, My so pleasure. At, did you get the questions I sent you as kind of a introduction to what we're doing? Yes, I did. They were quite thorough. Yeah, they're a little too thorough probably, but I figured we could kind of pick and choose from them, especially with regard to issues that you feel are most important to talk about today. Roger. No, 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 no problem. And I saw, um, I saw you had an open and sort of a range of sort of background about me and who I am. And so I can, I have no problem going in, you know, sort of going into depth with you guys, uh, sort of my background in dealing with the sort of, I guess, the confluence of refugee policy and national security issues. So I think this is going to be an interesting discussion and timely, actually. Yes, and that's actually why we're doing it. Um, the podcast itself is really a uh, eight-month-long series. It's once a month, but we're going. Um, I produce. It's about thirty minutes, but I take really the the little nugget, golden nuggets that I think are going to really shine some light on the issues that will help um, kind of uh, tease apart the the concerns or myths that people, you know, misinformation that's out there or just lack of information, you know. So. Roger. so if we work in the field, we know where to look for this information, but most people don't know what is a reliable source and where to look. So, No, it makes total sense. I mean, um, and it's really important to be, I mean, just so background for me, I'm from Boston originally. I've been in DC now off and on for the better part of 15 years, but you know, this particularly, um, I would say post nine 11 and post ISIS, there's been a, a real hunger um, at the level of sort of like uh, regional and state and better. So what the threats are to local communities here in the United States. Um, and I, th I really liked, so I really liked the way you weaved in the Europe issue. And I know in Texas, you guys have the, the, the best comp you guys have to what's going on in uh, Europe right now is where, you know, is the, what they call the clandestine. Uh, migration, you know, and that has the mixed immigrant, the mixed flow, the of uh, and yeah. uh, uh, particularly economic, which is something I think will be good to touch on here. Sort of draw the parallel for your listeners, you know, in Texas and elsewhere about how, you know, there are some similarities to what's going on in Europe in particular, and then there's some key differences. Absolutely, that would be great. So similarities. Texas, and then uh, key differences between that and Europe. All right, I've got that written down so that we can circle back to that too. Um, so I guess I want to start with just kind of some of your, um, uh, what you're, like your, I saw read about your specialty, but I'd like you to tell me about that and like how you see um, kind of your perspective on how you look at these issues. Excellent. So to start, um, my work dealing with sort of refugee issues began um, with an internship when I was an undergrad at American University in Washington, D.C. I had a semester internship with the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. Uh, this was back in 2005. Um, back then, you know, the Iraq, it was post 9-11, 2001, uh, 2001, and it was also in the, in the sort of the height of the U.S. involvement in the Iraq War. Um, so the research I did there, because I, I had a Middle East in my major, was to look at sort of vulnerable um, communities uh, in the Middle East, two particular communities. One uh, is the sort of the historic resident Palestinian refugee population in uh, Lebanon in particular. Um, and then the second was what, what would be classified by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees as stateless persons. Um, called in Arabic, literally people without a nationality, focusing on sort of Bedouin uh, Arab tribes that after the borders were drawn in the Gulf Arab countries were stuck without nationality um, in that sort of no man's land between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. So that work uh, really spurred my interest in sort of the, you know, how uh, both how local communities interact with refugee populations, how refugee populations, because they can't return home. So, for example, in the case of Palestinian refugees, how they become either integrated or not integrated into their host countries. 
and also what type of security dilemmas uh, result from that. So when I was in uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, I worked uh, full time at the American University here in Washington D.C. Uh, Center for Global Peace uh, on a number of uh, State Department funded uh, grant projects. Two focused on Iraq. One actually focused on Syria and Lebanon. And during that course of time, I had the opportunity to travel frequently to uh, Lebanon and in in Syria. And I did uh, field work on uh, particularly Iraqi refugee communities in Syria and Iraq and uh, their concerns, their fears, uh, how they were integrated into the local community. Um, I had the opportunity at the end of grad school, I won a national security education program of David L. Boren Fellowship, named after the famous senator from Oklahoma, a former senator from Oklahoma. That program is funded by the Department of Defense, and the, the purpose of it is to gain a language proficiency, in this case it was Arabic, but also to conduct research projects uh, that would contribute to U.S. national security understanding. And so that was between 2010 and 2011. And there I really focused in on Iraqi refugee communities in, in, in and around Beirut and their ties to communities in Damascus. And so what I what I really looked at was sort of, all right, where do Iraqi refugees settle when they settle in Lebanon and in, in Syria? Mm-hmm. How do they settle? For example, do Christian Iraqi refugees settle with Christian communities? Do Shia Muslim Iraqi refugee communities settle in Shia communities? Do Sunnis do the same? On and so forth. So part of that work, I was trained by the U.S. Uh, I was trained by a local Lebanese uh, NGO, which did, worked, uh, which did work on sort of citizen journalism and local advocacy issues. And then I was trained through their program, which was built out uh, by a U.S. agency for international development grant project um, to really help local uh, sort of Iraqi communities. Uh, and I focused on two vulnerable communities. One, uh, Christian refugees that settled in sort of the hard scrabble uh, uh, poor and working-class neighborhoods east of Beirut, and then also on sort of Shia Iraqi refugees that settled in southern Beirut suburbs. And also I looked at um, Iraqi refugees in southern Damascus uh, around the shrine of State of Zainab, which after the Civil War started became a front line uh, in the Civil War there. And so that work gave me sort of a greater appreciation and understanding of the challenges of, of newly arrived refugees um, and uh, the issues that they face on, in, 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 in countries such as Lebanon um, and, and Syria that are of, of, of major national security interest to the U.S. After that, um, from 2013 to 2014, I worked uh, on a project for the U.S. Central Command um, through the National Defense University that looked at the impact of the Syrian and Iraqi uh, civil wars on the greater Middle East, which gave me the opportunity to travel to Turkey and to uh, Jordan uh, frequently. And in Jordan, in, uh, in, in both Turkey and Jordan, uh, we interacted with and interviewed uh, Syrians, um, some refugees, some that still maintain residence in areas of, of Syria that were no longer under control of the Assad government, um, but return frequently. and interacted with uh, international humanitarian organizations that were based in both countries, and in particular in Jordan, um, had the opportunity uh, to talk to folks at Mercy Corps and uh, the the International Rescue uh, Committee and uh, Caritas. Um, Nick, can can I just want to to tell you, I actually don't think this was brought up to you, but I'm actually, I'm employed at International Rescue Committee. So here in Dallas. Oh, okay. I'm actually, I have two jobs. I, I have the paid fellowship to do the podcast, uh, to produce the podcast. Ah. So um, work part at 18 hours a week at International Rescue Committee as the advocacy associate, which is a new position that's grant funded. So I totally oh. realize everything you're saying is just hitting on everything that is on my desk and that I'm thinking about constantly. So, and we also have two Iraqi refugees for our first two, uh, our first episode. And then the second one is also an Iraqi refugee. And they're two different, completely sto- different stories with different ways that they even like moved around. And like one went to an urban settlement, a refugee uh, area in Jordan to um, wait for like 11 years to gain 
access to come to the U.S. Uh, to, get, yes. to get approved. And then another one was moving all over Iraq with her family as a child and, and was they threatened her little six-year-old brother and um, they just had to move around when bombings were happen, happening and just hearing their stories, which were completely different, but just as terrifying. Um, it just gave me this ability to see that every story, while they have similarities, have so much nuance and what the communities are feeling and going through is so tremendously um, life altering that I think it's really hard for Americans to relate to that. It, it is, and it, it's one of the dynamics, um, I thought those, you know, when the interest in dynamics is that after I completed that, in, that National Defense University project, I started at the Center for New American Security, and there I had the opportunity, um, you know, being from, the Bo- being from Boston and having roots in New England, uh, there's, a pretty active, uh, at, there's a pretty active fusion center there that brings together federal, state, and local authorities um, when it comes to sort of investigating potential uh, terrorist threats. Um, and one of the dynamics, as you know, is that although uh, New England hasn't settled the sheer, hasn't settled the same number of refugees as, say, Texas has or California or New York, although in the case of New York, because of its proximity to New England, you know, there's natural connections. There's actually, there was actually a pretty vibrant Iraqi refugee community that was settled in, uh, in Rhode Island and also in suburbs north of Boston. And so that, um, that, it was very interesting having the opportunity to brief and to interact with, um, in this particular instance, uh, the U.S. Attorney for Rhode Island's anti-terrorism um, sort of task force and to interact with the New England and New York, actually, fusion centers uh, in, that, in those briefings. Because when it came down to it, and this is really sort of a learn experience when we talk about sort of uh, being a young professional in the field of national security, but coming from a background, so my background in academia and in research was looking at how the politics of identity in the Middle East, how at the communal level impacts conflict um, and, and ending conflicts and reconciliation and tying that into sort of humanitarian disasters such as civil wars or economic disasters for that mind. So in the case of Syria, for example, prior to the civil war, there had been tremendous um, population, internal population flows from eastern Syria, where ISIS became powerful, to western Syria and to surrounding countries like Lebanon and Jordan for economic opportunity. And so when it came down to it, I always remember, you know, this is, you know, this is something that I always remember. I'm there, I'm doing my briefing, I'm walking through my experiences, walking through my field research, walking through, because at that time, that was in the fall of 2014, the U.S. had just begun its counter-ISIS campaign. There was a lot of concern um, that ISIS and other extremist groups in Syria and Iraq would try to seed, so to speak, operatives in uh, international refugee flows. Um, being, by being told by sort of a, a I, I'd say, a, you know, hard-nosed but fair a uh, local sort of police captain in Providence said to me, look, kid, love your presentation, but all I really need to know is what's going to happen over there going to lead to bombings and killings here in right. Warwick and Providence and in other parts of the state. And so that really sort of, in, in, a, in a sense, it was, a, it was a real lesson in how, you know, how uh, sort of American law enforcement officers have to think about these events that are happening over half a world away and w- how that impacts your day to day. And so since then, I've always tried to keep, you know, on these dynamics uh, when it comes to population flows, whether it's refugees, um, whether it's internally displaced people, which is another massive crisis, and whether it is sort of that. So what we would call in the national security field, so sort of those gaps between COCOMs or combatant commands, basically the flow of uh, populations from, say, Africa to the Middle East or Africa to Europe or all three together to Southeast Asia and how extremist organizations like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or their allies can try to take advantage of the confusion that happens in managing those population flows to uh, create networks of operatives that can attack uh, what they perceive as their enemies, particularly in Europe, but also in key U.S. partners in the Middle East, like such as Jordan or such as Turkey, or such as Lebanon. Um, how do you see that affecting our national security? 
whether it's our role over there or whether it's, you know, like the outflow of like refugees and asylees to to us as a result of these these population flows. There's, you know, as you know, there are different, there are sort of different layers to the challenge. I would say, you know, though there is always, you know, we have to, we have to sort of recognize that in the post September 11th, 2001 uh, era, and we're still in that era, and uh, the counter ISIS campaign is sort of the latest phase in that era, there's been a tremendous focus on U.S. homeland security, U.S. national security. How can American agencies at all levels, federal, state, and local, uh, become better prepared to prevent sort of attacks to, uh, inside the homeland? That's one layer, and that's the layer that really impacts sort of our own. It was the, that, that layer is what impacted uh, political debate after the attacks in Paris in November 2015, the Bataclan attacks. Um, it also in, in, in that layer impacted uh, impacts our presidential campaigns. Uh, the only the the one issue that resonated in terms of U.S. policy towards the Middle East uh, in the, the the last election was in fact ISIS and what to do about ISIS, which takes us to our sort of second second sort of layer, which is over there in the region, in the Middle East, in the North Africa, in Southeast Asia, and in Europe, and when we think about this layer of the challenge, it really has to do with the stability of core U.S. partners in the Middle East, such as Jordan, such as Lebanon, such as Turkey, uh, such as Saudi Arabia uh, and Iraq, and then also our, our, our allies in Europe. And this is where it becomes very interesting because those two layers of this, of, of this uh, of this challenge that has emerged since September 11, 2001, oftentimes gets get sort of woven together in our, our sort of national discourse. But in fact, uh, because of vetting procedures that the U.S. has implemented uh, since the September 11, 2001 attacks, the threat of domestic, um, uh, domestic attacks from refugees um, and asylum seekers is far lower than the threat of population movements destabilizing our core allies and partners in the region, in the Middle East, in Europe, and North Africa. And so sometimes that is, that is lost in this discussion, that we're really dealing with two layers here. When it comes to the layer that's, that's closest and most dear to, to the everyday uh, security of Americans, we have very, we've instituted very good procedures. Uh, the best procedures in the world, to the point where Europe is trying to adopt our, some of our procedures when it comes to admitting refugees, um, to a lesser extent, asylum seekers, but primarily refugees. And can you, that, yeah, that can second you, layer of how do, you, how do you best support our partners abroad so that these population flows don't undermine their security and their ability to, to provide safe haven uh, for the most vulnerable as you, how do you solve that challenge? Exactly. Um, can you speak to some of those um, improvements that have been made? Cause I think that's something I don't really hear anyone talking about right now in the media and I'm sure there's some, something somewhere, but um, I think that in here in Texas, you know, we're very focused on law enforcement and security, of course. And I think that's something that people would be interested in. Like, what does that look like and, would you, would any expert, how do the experts feel about that? Is that as tough as it can possibly get without, you know, pretty much going into some, I mean, obviously I know we've had technological advancements, we've had recent uh, data hall in Syria, things like of that nature, but what has improved that you've seen that you're just like, well, this system is getting pretty sophisticated, our uh, security system? Oh, I mean, there've been tremendous improvements. Um, since September 11, 2001, there has been there has been a real concerted effort across what we call the interagency, across government um, agencies at the federal level and also at the state and local level to really implement um, the program that's been outlined by the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, which is essentially that coordinating effort from the uh, to vet all refugees um, that are granted admission to the United States. 
And so I think it's important for us to sort of walk through how that happens. Um, The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, um, only, 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 only um, really tries to resettle 1% of the world's 21 million refugees. So you have to start with that, that the first layer of defense is actually by our international organization partners. No refugee that enters the United States um, comes just, they don't just show up at the doors of an embassy or consulate. You know, they just don't say, hey, I want to come in. First, they have, first, they have to be, uh, they have to be um, sort of flagged by UNHCR, or in, in some instances, they'll be flagged directly by the embassy or consulate, or a, a, a vetted and approved local uh, implementing organization that works with the U.S. government. That's step one. So when you think of it in that context, there is no refugee that comes to the U.S. that hasn't been first uh, recommended overseas in the country where they're seeking, in the country where they have refuge. The second layer is an intense process that lasts, you know, upwards of two or more years. And that process essentially said, when the U.S. Uh, State Department said, okay, UNHCR or okay consulate or okay local embassy, we agree that this person or this family, they deserve consideration to be settled in the United States. Then a whole process begins. And that process starts in the countries uh, of, of refuge. And for Syrians and Iraqis in particular, there's an even added layer that we'll get to. So the Department of, the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security uh, they begin a, a process of working with vetted and approved U.S. contracting agencies in these countries, in say Jordan or say Lebanon or say Turkey, for example, when it comes to Syrians or Iraqis, to figure out who are these people. You know, if there's a family, they interview every family member separately. They collect as much data as they can up front. You know, social media, social media uh, profiles. Um, education profiles, any uh, any official documents. They conduct interviews with uh, organizations, whether international or local, that have been providing services to these refugees. They do multiple interviews, and they put all of this into a database that's shared across interagency, across the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, that then has the ability to tap into classified information to, class, to tap into network analysis that's done by, say, CIA or the National Counterterrorism Center or the Department of Defense to find out anything, anything at all that could flag a family member um, that wants to be resettled in the U.S. as, as a refugee. And what so there's just... documents, though, because a lot of people bring that. That is one of the biggest arguments I would love to, like, be able to kind of just, like, say this is kind of a myth because... That really doesn't happen very often, or that, or if they don't have documents, there are other things they have to do that far beyond what happens when they don't have documents, or do they almost always have documents? Is that a myth? You know, more often, I would say the vast majority of cases, from what I have seen and what I have, what I have, what I have been sort of read into, have some form of documentation that can then begin a, a larger process of investigation. And to be quite frank, if a if a if an individual or a member of a family does not have enough verifiable information, they're not in the they're not they're kicked out of the process. Right. It really needs to be emphasized. Okay. Uh, you know, families. The U.S. does not have to admit families. There are several cases, for example, Syrians or Iraqi refugees, um, and in, and in, and in Somali refugees as well. You hear this as well. That they don't have, they the U.S. does family. Now the hope is to admit an entire family, um, but there are instances where one member or two members of the family will be admitted to the U.S. if they're admitted, and the rest will either stay or they will go to Europe because the U.S. just doesn't have enough verifiable information about that person. The point that really needs to carry through here is that when it comes to refugees. And, I know, and, and this is something that really is sort of a cold slap of reality. When it comes, from, when it comes to refugees, how the U.S. vets potential uh, uh, refugees to be resettled, 
the assumption is uh, guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. That the, this, these people that are brought to U.S. attention are, are potentially threats, and then they need to be they need to be cleared. And there's a whole system of interviews that are conducted. It's not just a database. It's not just we trust the word of you know some local contractor in Turkey or in Jordan or in Syria. I mean in Lebanon. It's we have trained U.S. national security professionals, whether from the Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, in some instances, Department of Defense, or uh, even in some more higher, um, sort of higher profile type refugees. You'd also have the intelligence community weigh in. These there are there's a whole layer of interviews that happen, and there is there are there are attempts to try to find holes in the stories of refugees. Know, to find out what were their connections, who were they tapped into. And before uh, refugees, if a refugee or a family of refugees have, have made it to the last layer of the process before they are actually said, okay, welcome to the United States. We want you to come into our country. They're given another final vet-in interview that really try and that will at times bring in sort of subject matter experts. So for example, if a refugee comes from, uh, let's say, Damascus in Syria, and they left the civil war, they left Syria, let's say, a couple years after the civil war began, 2013, 2014. Now they're resident in Turkey. They've been resident in a major southern Turkey city, say, Gaziantep. And they've been volunteering at a local Syrian-run Turkish government-approved uh, NGO that provides let's say, inside of Syria, that person, even if they are a woman head of household whose husband was killed in the civil war or who has been separated uh, from members of her family, they are then going to go and say, okay, this organization, where does it operate? Huh? It operates in an area of the country that we know there might be uh, Al-Qaeda-aligned rebel groups. Or you say, you know, it gets down to the district level. You say you come from this district of the city. Well, we have good, uh, we know, they don't say we have good, we, we know XYZ organization that is tied to Al Qaeda or another militant group is there. How do we know that you haven't been supporting them, that uh, the services that you provide haven't materially supported them? How do we know that when you come to the United States and try to use that opportunity and then the, the process that would fast track you to become a legal permanent resident? basically all the rights of a U.S. citizen except the right to vote for president, green card holder, that you're not going to use that against the United States or its partners. It is intensive. It is invasive, and it's done abroad. And that's the key distinction. When we talk about the differences between, the Europe, between Europe and the United States, one of the key distinctions is that when the U.S. goes to begin the process to admit refugees, it happens abroad. In Europe, they have another challenge, which is, Asylum seekers, which is when you when a refugee has arrived on the territory, either the European Union, frequently in say Italy, or Greece, or to a lesser extent Spain, that refugee is present on the territory of Europe, and will then seek the will then seek the opportunity to be admitted to European Union as a as a ref, as a refugee. It's a different it's a it's a different it's a different type of process. It's more challenging. Uh, there's larger flows of people, and so that's I think the key key point is when we talk about when we talk about extreme vetting, we talk about the need to know more. There is a, a a large library of data on every refugee that enters the United States, and particularly from Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and some other war zones. So the um, asylum seekers in Europe. I'm, I mean, I'm, I interviewed uh, Bill Holston who is the executive director of Human Rights Initiative here in Dallas. And he is kind of yes. the regional expert and attorney that uh, helps asylum seekers from all over. And they're not in every state, I guess. These, he said these offices are not in every state, these attorneys that do this pro bono. So, and they can't even go out to the detention centers. So we had a whole discussion about that, which was interesting. But essentially he was saying that um, asylum seekers here to the US, most of them are rejected. They're held in detention centers, which they didn't used to be, but now they are. That was under Obama. 
So we are looking at this from an issue of they've are my listeners have actually already heard that. So they are already looking at framing this episode this from an issue of they are aware that if they've listened to the first episode that asylum seekers aren't really getting in. Their their chances of getting in unless they have a lawyer are which most of them in detention centers aren't getting because they're rural, they're too far away. So we're really not at any threat from asylum seekers. As a matter of fact, if anything, the asylum seekers are being having their human rights violated regularly. So, um, and their ability to move around freely when they haven't really done anything, they're not, they're often not even told the right process, the right legal process that they have a right to here in the US. So in Europe, when those asylum seekers arrive, and I would assume there's like a lot, uh, these numbers are a lot higher in as far as the ratio between refugees, uh, people seeking refugee status in Europe versus people as asylum seekers in Europe. So what does that look like? So the, 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 the flows, you know, the, the, in Europe, the challenge they face when it comes to asylum seekers, first of all, Europe is just geographically closer mm-hmm. to areas such as North Africa, Africa, or the core Middle East, uh, and, and, and other places that we wouldn't normally think of, such as Afghanistan, um, for people to get to, to Europe. Typically, um, the, typically the, the asylum seekers arrive in southern Europe. They arrive by boat. The land, road, the land routes via Turkey to, say, Greece or Albania have mainly been closed off. Um, there was a massive sort of refugee or asylum seeker crisis in Europe uh, between 2013 and 2016. Um, The the, the EU made an agreement with Turkey, which gave Turkish nationals certain uh, improved uh, rights to enter the EU. It also um, provided monetary uh, compensation for the Turkish government in order to continue to host, um, say, for example, Syrian refugees in Turkey. And so it stemmed that flow. What makes it difficult in Europe in particular is that is the, the flow of what we would call mixed migration, which is refugees seeking, um, uh, seeking a new homeland uh, because they're fleeing conflict, whether it's in, say, Somalia or in Libya or in Sudan, um, and to a lesser extent from Syria via North Africa. And those that are leaving uh, poor uh, situations in places such as Eritrea or other areas of Africa that go via sort of the land route through the Sahara Desert, that vast um, geographic space, it's very difficult to police, and then by boat, typically from, uh, typically from Libya, try to cross the Mediterranean and arrive in Europe. And once they've arrived in Europe, there's a larger flow of people, they're typically separated from the population. They're held on islands or they're held in other remote areas. And it becomes very difficult because uh, under the European Union agreements, under the Dublin II Accords, which were signed in 2003, the burden of providing for refugees and asylum seekers falls on the country where they initially set foot. And so that has disproportionately affected, say, Italy or Greece, to a lesser extent Spain, and there's been a push from certain uh, EU states, such as Germany, or even the, the European uh, Parliament, the European Union itself in Brussels, to try to create a more equal distribution. So for asylum seekers um, that settle in southern, that arrive in southern Europe, where the economies are weaker, Greece is a weak economy, Italy is, has an economy that's challenging, where it's difficult for the local, for the country to integrate you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of new people, many of whom don't have sort of advanced skills that could immediately contribute to their economies and to the aging workforce that they have in these countries, where they also have very good social welfare systems that are now being taxed by their own demographic uh, bubbles um, as an aging population uh, isn't in the workforce and isn't uh, necessarily providing to the social security system. Those benefits aren't being distributed, and so there's, a, there's an attempt in Europe to create a Europe-wide quota system where you'd have a couple, a couple thousand refugees go from Italy to, say, Hungary, or 10,000 refugees go from Italy to, say, the Netherlands. 
And there's a lot of difficulty with fundamentally, um, unlike the U.S., is, is composed of member states. And member states, um, because the Dublin II Accord that, let's say, are far from the shores of the Mediterranean, don't necessarily have to accept refugees and asylum seekers. And so that creates internal problems. And so that's the challenge Europe has, in particular, that we don't face to the same degree. The closest parallel that we have to what Europe is facing right now, that mixed migration flow, is um, in our southern border. And you know, this will resonate with Texas residents in what they call they would what we would call sort of clandestine uh, immigration, which is people trying to illegally enter enter the country um, without going through formal channels of immigration, or in the case of asylum seekers and refugees, sort of the problem them and then approve them and then place them in a local community to be supported from the minute they arrive so they can become sort of brought into and acculturated to where they're allowed. That is, that is, that is the challenge that Europe faces now, and that's the, 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 the sort of the clearest comparison that we can make between U.S. and Europe. Um, what are the challenges to, I mean, obviously there are risks to uh, large flows of people um, just moving about, uh, and especially when they're fleeing this kind of civil uh, violence as well as sectarian violence, just all, all the things, and even in a lot of cases, just, um, you know, totalitarian or, uh, you know, violent regimes that are in charge of the government or, uh, you know, uh, even famine. So when this is happening, like, what are the risks that we're seeing from those large flows of people that, what do you see as the actual real risks versus the perceived risks that a lot of people were okay. kicked in? And, you know, in this, and so in this, I will, I will focus this more in the, in the context that we talk about when it comes to refugees, uh -huh. asylum seekers, and we talk about that confluence with transnational terrorist organizations. Um, I would say that, again, going back to the layers of concern, we'll go layer of concern it has to do with two. One is when you have actual frontline states in the Middle East and North Africa, countries like Tunisia, uh, countries such as Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon. These countries on the main, to a lesser extent Turkey, have weak economies. Uh, they have their own internal uh, issues. Um, they have risk of being destabilized, which offers further opportunities for groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to try to take root because of population dissatisfaction. Um, that's the first layer. The second layer, which impacts Europe more, is sort of the challenge of how do you discern when you have hundreds of people at a time coming in a boat and they just arrive on your shore or even thousands of people over the course of several months. How do you know who is who, so to speak? How do you know that someone's story is true? How do you know that that person from Sudan isn't, in fact, a member of an al-Qaeda organization? Or how do you know that that Libyan isn't, wasn't part of a group that committed human rights atrocity? It's very difficult, and it's, very, it's sort of very difficult to discern, which is why you see certain states in Europe, such as France. President Macron, for example, this summer um, sort of unveiled a new policy, and the policy was strengthen national borders. This is one of the impacts of the, 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 the flow of the population flow that's affecting Europe. So strengthen the national borders, national border security, to begin a, a much more invasive process of sort of acculturating um, uh, migrants in, in, in France, uh, to, to also begin to implement a more U.S. system, whereas the French will accept, only accept asylum and Seekers and refugees for resettlement if they've been if they've been vetted abroad in their country of origin or the nearest country in the region where they come from where they sought refuge. In order to really try to adopt sort of the U.S. system of hey, you want to come and live in our country the rest of your life, you want to be a member of our society, but we need to know who you are over there. Um, that's one. That's the one example of how. A, a wealthier, more powerful European impact that policy. In other countries with difficult uh, in Europe, in Central Europe, or even in Northern Europe, is a concern that uh, 
mass population flow from regions of the world where there are different cultures. And oftentimes it comes across in context of sort of religion or Muslim versus Christian or Middle Eastern versus Europe. How do you actually integrate them? How do they not become sort of a drain on the local, um, those, the local society and sort of state welfare services that make Europe very attractive? And the fact of the matter is, um, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that certain countries such as Germany um, and uh, Sweden have taken on the, the bulk of asylum seekers from the Middle East, particularly mm -hmm. Syrians and Iraqis that want to enter Europe because they have better social welfare systems. They have better systems in place from day one uh, for people that are the people that are trying to migrate there to, to sort of start a new life and to start over. And so this is where it becomes very complicated uh, very quickly. And so what we see, and this is important for sort of U.S. listeners, is that the system that we put in place since September uh, 11th, 2001, is actually a model that other countries want to, to build on. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is so discerning and so discriminatory, and it's done over there, quote-unquote, that it, it, the, the perceived security risks are so low that other countries want to adopt it. Yeah, that's really uh, important. And I haven't heard uh, that stated that way before, so I really appreciate this. And everything you're telling me is giving some uh, really unique perspectives that are just coming in at these kind of unique angles that we're just not looking at it from uh, on a normal, on a regular basis. And so one of the things that that brings up is that one of the big pictures I'm seeing here from everything you're saying is that these layers, they make a difference. They make key, there are key differences that help us understand and think about migration and um, how, how we tease out whether or not someone's a threat. But I also wonder, like, when you balance that with humanitarian values, and I know that right now a lot of people are like, we'll worry about that later. Right now we're just worried about, you know, we don't want even one person to get through, which I understand that fear. It's a legitimate fear. But um, do we have any data or percentages on, like, bad actors using these flows to actually achieve any terrorist goals or get a stronghold? I mean, obviously in, you know, countries like Syria and Iraq, yes, but I'm talking about like actually achieving a terrorist stronghold and pulling off, like from what I understand, a lot of even in Europe, some of the um, terrorist attacks that have happened have been homegrown and have happened when we've actually ignored the, the newer population that has moved in there and not provided them with opportunities at all, like, um, how do you see that uh, influencing kind of the, uh, the risk as well uh, to these, uh, these security, these uh, attacks or these, um, these one-off instances when they're not necessary? Because I'm wondering the difference between a one-off incident, you know, kind of a homegrown incident because of what the factors are there versus like infiltration where they're intentionally mm -hmm. a terrorist organization is intentionally using these migration flows to actually infiltrate um, a country that does have pretty good um, systems where they might want to be and might want to make an attack against the West. Is that a, like, do we have any data on that? What do you think? The data that we do have indicates that when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers, um, the threat to the U.S. homeland is is quite low, and that you know the the most the the, the actually the greatest risk to the U.S. let's say from um, sort of foreign nationals are in fact from foreign nationals that are part of the visa waiver system. So there are thirty uh, as of as of my understanding there are thirty four countries mostly in Europe that are part of the visa waiver system, which means they go through a very um, short screen-in process um, before they, they get their tourist visa, for, in particular, to come to the United States. And so this, this threat is more along the lines of uh, people, let's say, from Europe, people from Europe that grew up either in disenfranchised communities in Europe of, of, older, of older ways of migration. Um, and uh, we saw that with the attacks in France, and we saw that with the attacks in Belgium, that it's actually much more effective for, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS to be able to have an operative that was born and raised in a country in Europe who has the passport, has the nationality, who, who understands the system and the language, 
than it is to have a refugee or an asylum seeker. Because, for example, more often than not, let's say a a refugee boat arrives in Italy, they're going to be detained and they're going to be held in a in a camp more often than not. They are going to be separated as much as possible from the quote-unquote mainland of Europe. And there is where they're trying to institute more sort of aggressive vet-in processes. But because of the, the number of people and sort of the, local, the resources that are available to authorities in southern Europe, it becomes more of a challenge. But for the U.S., our threat vector is more likely to come from sort of self-radicalized people in the United States that are born Americans, they're U.S. citizens, they speak American, quote-unquote, English, you know, they're, they're members of the community, um, or in a, in a much more remote sense, um, people from in particular Europe that may have become radicalized there and have tried to carry out attacks in the U.S. But that is such a, you know, the studies that we've done, the analysis that we have from the U.S. Inter, to the interagency level, from all of the assessments you see, really the, the challenge when it comes to refugee communities is actually not so much U.S. national security, but say refugee communities. The famous example, of course, is the Somali refugee community in the upper Midwest, in Minnesota, where people who were born in the U.S. or came at a very early age um, radicalized and then wanted to go wage jihad overseas. Uh, thus far in the U.S., we've been far we've been far more fortunate that we don't have restive uh, community. We don't tend to have restive communities that feel so disenfranchised that they want to carry out attacks in the United States. Our experience has been a very very small number of people from sort of first generation backgrounds may have decided to go wage war in their homeland, not in the United States. And, you know, part of, part of that success is in the U.S., we have to give ourselves some credit here. You know, we have a very strong federal to, to state to local process infusion centers that are in place. We have a whole program that, in fact, uh, some of the European nations are trying to emulate, which is what we call community outreach and engagement. Uh, we try to, as much as possible, you know, we've learned since September 11, 2001, about how not to go about uh, interacting with members of communities that we think may be at risk of having members of their community radicalized and carry out attacks, how not to engage with them, how to engage with them. And you know what the core, actually at the end of the day, you know what the core lesson of that whole process has been? What? Simple, simple standards of American legal doctrine, which is innocent until proven guilty. Put them through their suspicion, begin to build a case, interact with members of the community, doing it in a very careful approach. And then if there's cause for concern, that's when you act. I think this is, it's tough here in the U.S. And I'm going to go back to that case I gave you when I gave that briefing to those hardened, you know, local cops in Providence, Rhode Island, who are part of that, the, the state and regional fusion settlements. At the end of the day, what we want to know is what happens over there in the Middle East is going to get someone to radicalize here and carry out attacks in our home community. And the answer to that is the evidence that we have so far is no. Now, the, I think that we do have a bet. We have a, a longer term challenge in that second we talked about in the region in that, uh, for example, Lebanon, where one in every four people in Lebanon is a refugee or in Jordan, where something like one in every eight people is a refugee, or in Turkey, which has three million refugees. Turkey has almost as many Syrian refugees as the number of refugees that have been admitted to the United States over three decades. That's something very important to keep in mind. Over three decades that the U.S. has had its modern sort of refugee admission process, we have had the same number of refugees as Turkey has had in the half decade of the Syrian civil war, just Turkey. And so there's, I think there's a much more difficult challenge when we speak about sort of our key partner states in the region and how they will be able to have a resident population of refugees that may not be able to go back home. The Syrian civil war is still ongoing. There's still mass population inflows from Iraq. Uh, there, are, there are challenges for countries like Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey of, okay, what next? 
Lebanon, for example, a country I have a lot of experience in, is 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 very challenged by a the, the prospect of a now a, a another sort of um, uh, sort of large scale refugee community that settles in the country and isn't properly integrated, as was happened with the Palestinian refugees, primarily from 1948 war between Arab states and Israel. And so in Jordan, we see it already, the economic consequences of uh, the Syrian civil war in terms of just the already bad situation economically and for opportunities for young Jordanians becomes magnified when you in include, you know, Syrians, for, for example, and to a lesser extent now Iraqis who, you know, they need to survive and who, are, who want to live in the population. They don't want to live in refugee camps. They don't want to have to go through the UNHCR process. And so there's this, there's this, there's this challenge of the stability of our regional partners. Yeah, and, and, and with regard to that, um, I, I think that brings up the concern uh, that we're looking at with the other, you know, consequence of not addressing the global refugee uh, issue. If we don't, if we don't, as a country and the other countries that we work with and uh, partner with, if we don't address this issue, those risks, um, what does that look like? Are there any, um, you know, models that are predicting what we're looking at in the next decade or few decades if we're really not addressing this issue and we're just like, oh, just leave them alone, let them, let them figure it out themselves, that kind of, you know, that's a lot of what we get in the general public. We hear that a lot. Like, right. well, or let's just take care of them over there. And I'm like, well, we are already. We only take less than 1%, but, you know, we're already doing that. But what really is the problem is that we haven't well distributed the refugee population over there. And so what would you say are those um, consequences of that if we don't fix this or, or, or what are maybe even some, I know it's complicated, but what are some potential solutions the community is thinking about? You know, the, you know, the solutions are always the end of the conflicts that drive refugee flows when it mm -hmm. comes to the conflict of Iraq and Syria and the ability for people. And all the, all the interviews I've conducted with refugees in, in Lebanon, Syria and Jordan and Turkey, whether Iraqi or Syrian, go home. Um, now, they want to be able to return to their lives. Um, there's a smaller percentage of that refugee population that, you know, they would like to go home, but, you know, they're also looking for economic opportunities. And that's where sort of Europe comes into play. And this comes more to the fact of Europe is just a very attractive destination for, what we, you know, the mixed sort of the mixed population of migration flows. They're a mixture between people that are fleeing conflict and those that are looking for better economic opportunities. And that's much more difficult because really what that comes down to is that it, when it comes to our European allies, you know, their decisions about, in their own local political context, European to be part of that broader European project where borders are, you know, borders are dissolved in order to promote trade in the common Eurozone and to have their own national ability to control how people enter their societies. And that's important for us to recognize that, you know, the major challenge for, say, a Jordan and a Lebanon, to a lesser extent Turkey, has less to do with we can't integrate these people, because by and large, most of the population of refugees happen to be Arab, Arabic-speaking. Um, many refugees have, have um, familial ties into Jordan or into Lebanon. Um, and in some cases into Turkey as well. And so th their issue is more of, can the local economy sustain it? And you know, are bad actors like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others trying to use this as a way to wage jihad against their near enemy as they classify it, which are our partner states. Europe, it's m much more tied into identity politics, what it means to be European, what it means to be part of the European project, um, what this means for um, what this means for this, the countries, the frontline states of Europe, like Italy and Greece, in terms of what they're supposed to do with tens of thousands, in some cases, of people, um, you know, what, are, what is expected from them, and that—that is—that's a—that's a much broader challenge. And you know, we have—I think what's lost in this debate. I do want to hone in a little bit on this idea of sort of mixed. Uh, mixed population migration. And this is something where the parallel, again, is closer to the U.S., but not so much in the instance of, you know, people from Africa or, say, Central Asia or Middle East, more in terms of our Latin American native, uh, neighbors of 
you know, people want to come to countries like the U.S. or countries in Europe because of our, of our openness, because of the economies we've built, because of our reputation for welcoming outsiders. And, you know, we, we and in Europe, we are in a, in a, in a, in a real sort of introspective state, uh, stage trying to wonder fundamentally, you know, what our own identities are and what we want for our future. And it, this issue becomes this issue of migration flows becomes magnified, particularly when the economic aspect of it gets woven in. You know, this idea of they take our jobs, or they, or in the European case, they're draining our tax dollars. Why should I pay high taxes for social welfare system that's collapsing and doesn't give me the services that I'm accustomed to in better days? And those are much more difficult to answer. Because that's where, that's where identity, national identity, and in some cases local identity, gets woven into broader issues of macroeconomic stability and what it means to be both welcome, what it means to be welcoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I agree, like, that's one of the issues that, yeah, when we start talking about that, it comes down. And here in Texas, one thing I found that, relate, that helps people relate when they're not really pro-refugee, but they're just kind of have lots of concerns, but they're reasonable. You know, they ha they're asking good questions. They're asking the right questions. And what I bring up to them is, you know, here in Texas, we're known for our hospitality. And when you offer people hospitality, you get something back in return. And sometimes you have to wait for it. You know, you have to look at it as an investment and not as a, but I understand too, when someone's, one of my friends, you know, struggles with her husband's business has struggled recently and their insurance has gone through the roof and they see that as, you know, we don't have room in our budget to have anything else, you know, going towards anybody else. We really need to fix this first, you know, and, you know, that's a perspective that you can't argue with because from our, you know, their life, their quality of life, if it's going down, then we have to address that too because they have the same rights to having a good quality of life as a refugee does. And so while the refugee may seem is in the more desperate situation at the moment, these, if we go, if they go down, if a lot of, if a mass group of U.S. citizens, go, you know, the middle class or whatnot, start feeling they're kind of losing their, their hold on that, then we start having, you know, issues and unrest and people being more willing to, to go to you know, do things that they wouldn't have done before. And so I think, um, I think that's important. Absolutely. But you're right. It's, ex it's exactly why people come here because, uh, or not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons we are seen as, you know, a, a place. Uh, and I've heard that from refugees I've interviewed. They're like, you know, we don't need to make America great again. America's already great because of the people and because of the opportunity. So, um, but when you see someone working two jobs to take advantage of that opportunity, it's less of an argument about whether they're contributing or not. And I think that is that one is kind of does need to be kind of uh, looked at as both a long-term investment. Most most refugees and migrants want to work, um, and they want to provide for their families. But you know, if you're not giving them an opportunity to contribute, then how can you blame them that they're not paying, paying taxes? You know what I mean? So these are really complex, you know, these are the complicated, like, cir circular arguments that we get into here in Texas all day, every day. So, <laughs> Well, and I just want to go back to this point you raised, which I think is excellent, is that when we talk about refugees, we need to separate refugees from the, what we, again, the mixed, mixed population migration flow. I think the figures released were in the first seven months, 2017, maybe almost 150, uh, almost a little bit over 100,000 uh, what we would call clandestine immigrants have tried to enter the U.S. through the southern states. Most mm -hmm. of those people are doing it for better opportunity, economic reasons. That's different from refugees because refugees actually, you know, refugee is written into U.S. law that a refugee is defined as someone that has a reasonable fear of persecution or to be killed because of their identity, their nationality, their race, religion, sexual orientation, um, and that's a different, and it's a different process with refugees. When we talk about refugees, say, from Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo, or mm -hmm. from Afghanistan, or from Somalia, or from Eritrea, or from, uh, from Syria, or from Iraq, it's a different process that they go through. It's much more discriminatory. It happens, quote-unquote, over there. And, you know, the numbers are much smaller. I think my understanding is in 2016, the figures are something around 
a little bit over 7,000 refugees were settled, let's say, in Texas, of a population of over 20 million people. Right. 7,000 in a population of over 20, 20 million people in your great state that's the size of many nations. Right. So it's something to just keep in perspective, too, is when we talk about refugees, it's a different ball game. Mm -hmm. There's a different, there's a different goal line. Mm -hmm. Yes, I fully agree with that. Yes. Uh, and that's something I bring up. I try to do some graphics that kind of really put the perspective on the issue, because if you don't have perspective, then you may realize that you may be really upset about an issue. I mean, and I do think that a lot of people that I've talked to have kind of had that wake up call where they're like, whoa, we're, I'm like all wound up about this issue and it's not even really going to ever affect me. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And I said, you know, here's the thing at the end of the day, it, it's like, you, this is an issue where you really can, if you learn enough about it, it's, it's pretty easy to go with, you know, what feels right to you, what feels like the right thing to do in this situation. Whereas there are other situations where it's really hard to figure out by feeling and following your heart, you have to actually look at so many complex factors. And I think this one is one. And also, I always tell people, meet a refugee. Like, that was one of the questions I think I put on your, on the top of your, you know, ideas for questions was, have you met a refugee? Which obviously you have. <laughs> but, um, but that's one thing that I ask everyone. Like, have you met a refugee? And usually the answer is no. And so I'm like, well, could you come with me and meet a refugee at my agency or at an event we're hosting? Because, um, it changes people's lives just to meet one. It really does. Yeah, it's a very powerful experience. Um, and it's, you know, it's a powerful experience when you meet refugees overseas and in areas where, you know, the area that they're living in is impoverished. You know, people are trying to accommodate them. Or they're, in some instances, they're targeted for exploitation and abuse. And it's just a different, you know, it's just a different... It's just a different, you know, it's just a different context. And this is, this is going to be, this is a, a this is a, a very emotional issue. Um, with the rise of ISIS, it has become, again, tied into national security discussion. Again, a discussion about the homeland uh, and our own homeland security. And it's tough, too, because and this is something that I am always introspective on. You know, I'm in the national security field. I'm in the field of research in national security. In the post-September 11, 2001 context, we often magnify the threat from organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS to a degree that's totally out of proportion with their actual threat to our country. Again, people have to understand, we're a country of 320 million people and growing spread over a continent. So the... The size that we, just the scale of our nation, of our, our communities that come that are part of our nation, is such that you know, in our own tradition of being welcoming to outsiders, of being a nation of immigrants, of being a nation that tends to do the right thing when it comes down to it, really come, runs up against this fear that hasn't been inspired. And I know one of the elements that I try to incorporate in my briefings or in my own work you know, is to put proper perspective and to really just say, look, you know, you know, we have, we can't, you know, we can't, we can't live as in, we can't live as a giant afraid of an issue that is, we can't live as a giant nation afraid of such a small threat. And really the, the biggest threat to our country is how we react, it's how we uh, how we, I, we, we may not come together. And so I think that's the key point that I always try to raise when we talk about, you know, these layers of security threats from the homeland, say, to the Middle East. We really have to stop and say to ourselves, okay, huh, am I, much, am I really threatened by ISIS or am I threatened by the fear that ISIS can inspire in me and those around me to act in a way that does not conform to the values of this country? That's powerful, Nick. Thank you for saying that. We are at 108, so I wanted to make sure uh, an hour and eight minutes. So I wanted to make sure I'm being respectful of your time. Um, happy to, you know, discuss anything that you're still feeling you haven't touched on or wanted to touch, you know, has come up that you feel like I really want to talk about that. 
Um, but I just want to be respectful if you have another meeting that you need to get to or anything. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I think I would like to sort of end on that note. Um, okay. Great. And that, that's sort of the mass, that's the message I'd like to end on. Um, okay. and it was a great message. That was really powerful. And of course that's going in for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think you, you just said it so beautifully because as you said it, I was sitting there picturing the way you painted that picture. I'm picturing, you know, how giant, you know, the U S is and like the statue of Liberty and like really the, these terrorist organizations are like little gnats flying around. Like we really have kind of, let fear, which is exactly what they want, you know. So I've read, you know, uh, the magazine that they um, put out. Um, what was it called? Uh, I, yeah, I, I've yep. read that. Yeah, and I don't think they've put. And and I did want to ask you on a personal note: Is it would it be okay for me to pass your information along to Dr. Ruddleson? It's totally. It's not completely related to the podcast at all. It's just that. He is big on like having speakers over Skype for our class um, on Tuesday night. And if you're interested in talking to a class that's really fascinated and just totally geeking out over this topic of, you know, the Middle East and security, and we're really studying the jihadists and how they rose to be and like uh, came to be in like Afghanistan, what's going on there now in Syria and Iraq, all everything that you're doing is pretty much what we're looking at right now in terms of that instability they've created and how we're at that right now. So if you, would it be okay for me to pass his, your information on to him? Yes, please, of course. Okay, great, I will let him know that. And um, yeah, so thank you so much for your time. And I, if I have any questions to fill in a blank or something, I could do a voiceover. So I may send you an email if I have any like little questions to just, hey, can you uh, fill in this blank? I misunderstood this or I needed to clarify something. So just so we can be really um, productive with it and very accurate. So, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. All the best to you. Look forward to talking okay. in the future. All right. You have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye.